I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Pete Najarian, and Steve Grasso. Tonight on Fast, the House votes to impeach. The resolution is adopted without objection. The motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. A new fallout this hour following that historic vote in Congress to impeach President Trump for the second time. We are live in Washington with the very latest. Plus, Intel surging as the company announces a new CEO is a real turnaround in the works for the struggling stock. We'll debate that. And later, Pete is going to the mattresses. Why he says you shouldn't sleep on this stock, he's taking the mound for a fast pitch that's straight ahead. But we start off with breaking news on Johnson & Johnson's COVID vaccine. Let's get straight to CNBC senior health and science reporter Meg Terrell with the details. Meg. Hey, Melissa. These are more results from Johnson & Johnson's phase 1-2 study. So more results on the antibody levels that this vaccine generates. It is not yet the highly anticipated phase 3 efficacy study, but those are due within weeks. These results, though, Mel, give us a reassuring look at what those efficacy results are likely to look like. So this is the shot. That's just one dose. This is what they're testing here. Uh, that would be a real game changer. And what they found in this phase 1-2 study is that after a single shot, 90% of people uh, got neutralizing antibodies by day 29. That was up to 100% after two months and then stable out to day 71. Encouragingly, those levels were similar to what was seen with the mRNA vaccines. So you could think that that bodes well for the efficacy. It was the same across age groups if you were over 65 or under, which is also reassuring. Uh, they did see side effects that you see sometimes like fatigue, uh, headache, injection, pain, and fever. Now, Dr. Paul Stoffels, I talked with him from Johnson & Johnson. He said if antibodies are the drug then we should see a high level of efficacy. And Mel, another important thing about this vaccine, other than the single dose and what looks like uh, high antibody levels, um, is how easy it is to store and ship. They can store it at minus four degrees Fahrenheit long term, and they can store it for up to three months at 36 to 46, which is a regular fridge temperature. Uh, so this is a vaccine that is thought to be hopefully a game changer, and we should be seeing those efficacy results uh, within a few weeks. Melissa? All right, Meg, and we are seeing the stock climb in the after-hour session now up 3%. Meg Terrell with the details, the latest on J&J's 1-2 uh, phase results. Uh, Guy Dami, we have, we have talked about these COVID Hi. vaccine treatments. We see the stock react, so what's your initial reaction to this? There are a lot of reasons to own J&J. I mean, this is one of them. I don't think it's the main one, though, and I think the guys would probably agree. I think all the bad news is behind them, valuation-wise, trading at 17 and a half times next year's numbers, which in my opinion is cheap. They have three very distinct businesses. Half of their revenue comes from pharmaceutical. The other half between medical devices and consumer products. It's a well-constructed company. I mean, this is sort of the kicker. This is the tailwind, but this isn't the sole reason. I think you can own Johnson & Johnson for a myriad of reasons, including valuation. And I think just this helps that argument a little bit more. The gain is approaching 4% after hours, knowing that in a few short weeks we will get phase three data. Pete, is this one that you would play either through the stock itself or through options? Well, you know, I love the stock, and, and Guy just laid out exactly why I think we all probably would like this stock, because of what they do and the value that they have in three different uh, aspects of their businesses. I think that really does point something out that you're not just getting pharma, you're getting a consumer and you're getting uh, the, the medical devices unit. And all of that, I think, is great. 
So I, I think it's a quality company, absolutely. But am I, am I buying J&J right now because of the vaccine? I absolutely would not be buying for that reason. I just would be buying because I think they're a quality company that just does so many things right. And they've had a few missteps here and there, but very few. And, I, you know, right now I own Pfizer. I own Merck. I own a couple others. I got Gilead and a few other names out there. I probably should be in J&J. I like this name, but I don't own it right now. And this is not the reason, in my opinion, to buy the stock. I mean, if one wanted to be in Big Cap Farmer, is J&J the place, Steve? Yeah, I think it's as good a place as, as any place. I'm long uh, Pfizer. I've been long Pfizer forever. And when you look at the chart, Pfizer and Moderna both had a huge run up because of the vaccine. And I think J&J will be due that huge run up as well. So I would be a buyer of J&J right here, right now, right on this news. But remember, Pfizer and Moderna both pulled back dramatically. So get in, ride the pop, and then leave the stock. Yeah. Is there a further pop, you think, Tim, if, if phase three is favorable? Do we see another pop here? I, th I think it's a catalyst that, that then highlights also just the other parts of the business. So what Steve's saying, I, I think, then highlights what Guy and Pete were saying. You know, look, they're, they're pharma business, and it's been guided to be above average market growth and, and a better driver. Their oncology pursuits, uh, momenta acquisition, I think, are very, very bullish. Uh, medical devices business will begin to normalize in 2021. Their consumer products business is rock solid and gotten through some difficult times uh, on talc and other things. So um, is this a catalyst that unlocks some value for a lot of people that I think are mostly neutral on this name? And, and largely, that's been the right call. But yes, I I think you can stay here and I think you can get something out of this. We've been having this narrow pharma conversation, one primarily focused, no surprise, on Johnson & Johnson. But of course, this has much broader implications for the economy and for the reopening trade in general. If one is to believe that there's a much it's much easier to distribute, it's much easier to manufacture and that you need one single dose instead of two doses uh, to achieve efficacy, Pete. I would think that you might feel a little bit better about the economy reopening and regaining of some of the ground it's lost. Absolutely. And, and I'm definitely in that camp, Mel. I think we, we're getting over. There's been a lot of different humps that we've had to get over. And obviously, as we've gone through the, the entire year of 2020, all, all the, uh, the, the pressure to get out a vaccine as fast as possible that's also safe. And I think that we've started to get ourselves into a position now where we can look ahead and we can say, you know what, there's enough out there. The distribution problems, I think they'll get over that as well. And I think that bodes w really well for a lot of the different parts of the economy that haven't been able to open up just yet. But I think that will happen. It might still take, obviously, a quarter or two, probably two quarters before we get that comfortable. But I, I, I like what's happening right now. And clearly, uh, hats off to all of these various companies that have done such a magnificent job as far as the speed at which they have worked to make sure that we can get these vaccines out as fast as possible. It's absolutely amazing. I followed pharma for a lot of years, Mel. And I'll tell you what, the speed at which we have moved in this particular case has been extraordinary. And by the way, the J&J CEO had said previously that the company is on track uh, for a billion vaccine doses by the end of this year. So that's how fast this vaccine could get out to the general population. Uh, let's get now to Intel. That was a big story today. Shares rocketing higher on news that CEO mm -hmm. Bob Swan will step down next month. VMware CEO Pat Kelsinger will take over the position. The shakeup comes just two weeks after third point Stan Loeb urged Intel's board to explore strategic alternatives. We have asked numerous times, Guy, um, given the run in Intel, given Dan Loeb entering 
um, as an activist invest, investor. Is this, are we going to look back on that day as a turning point for Intel? Now with this happening, do we say yes? Yeah, it's interesting. I'll say no. Um, I don't think so, because I think the problems they have are they're very deep and it's going to take a while to get, get through them. I mean, the data center business, if you go back to last quarter, I mean, in one word, it's a, a disaster. And I think that most people would agree with that. The real compelling argument here for Intel is new CEO, Dan Lowe behind him and valuation. Those are the three things you're hanging your hat on. And maybe that pans out. By the way, kudos to Dan Nathan who, when we played Dog of the Dow, I think a couple weeks ago, said that Intel was the one he would put a bet on. That's proven to be correct. I will say this. There are other chip names that are just a lot better. We've mentioned them. I'll mention them quickly. AMD, although has pulled off since touching $100-ish the other day, is a name. Qualcomm, I think, around an all-time high. And a name we talk about from time to time is Lamb Research, which just continues to grind higher. All those stocks obviously have a premium valuation, but it's a premium valuation mm-hmm. for a reason. This is the title of Raymond James's note on this new CEO. New CEO creates hope, but Intel's platform is still burning. <laughs> that underscores the problems, the very big problems that Pat Gelsinger still has to solve, even though he is a technology guy. He is looked at uh, as, a, as an excellent CEO candidate, excellent incoming CEO. Steve Grasso, what do you think of Intel now? So the problem that uh, Guy had, uh, had just mentioned, they have major deep, deep issues within Intel, the most of which they've had supply issues, they've had manufacturing issues, and also you've had Apple, Amazon, Google supplying themselves with chips. So those are the major droughts that Intel will have to deal with. I think it's a secular problem for Intel. I would not be a buyer, especially on this pop. I, I wouldn't be a buyer of tech, you know where I am right now, but definitely not a buyer of Intel on this pop. I mean, the knee-jerk reaction was up 7%, Tim, but, you know, KeyBank had an interesting thought, and that is that the new CEO may make it more unlikely that Intel seeks to outsource certain parts of manufacturing that perhaps the Wall Street thought would be a solution to the manufacturing issues that have plagued this stock and this story for the past quarter or so. Well, I think Wall Street is, is thought that Intel wasn't up for it and outsourcing might keep the company more focused on, on data center and things that are working. But like, I, I, I think this, this had to be done. And you have to be encouraged not only by the background uh, of, of, of this gentleman, but again, the history at Intel, the first CTO, uh, and an understanding of the mix between software and architecture in processing technology. I mean, this is the right guy for the job to understand where the industry is, where it's going, where this company needs to go. And I think this is a company that was, was clearly underperforming. So relative to a peer group and, and, and you know, looking at where, uh, you know, look at the SMH, look at the outperformance of, of, of that ETF uh, relative to Intel. And I think Intel's got a lot of catching up to do. Doesn't mean it's going to happen over overnight. But uh, right man for the job? I think so. Uh, and, and again, Intel's core asset base, I think something that can be leveraged and really is trading absurdly cheap and deservedly so. Um, so I like this announcement today. Pete, I think it was two weeks ago when Dan Loeb uh, announced his involvement. I asked you on this show uh, what the stock would do if Bob Swan stepped down. And here we are today. I didn't ask yeah. you, what do you do with the stock after? <laughs> So I guess that's part two here that I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you, I sold. I, I, I took off um, 50% of the options that I had bought just the other day. 
And somebody had sniffed this out, Mel. There's no doubt about it. Their buying that we were seeing was just happening yesterday. The stock was trading under 53, and this morning, stock was over 60. So it was a pretty substantial move to the upside. I think the biggest point for me right now, and the reason I would exit, um, and I have a stock position as well, and I've taken a piece of that off, and I'll probably take the rest off fairly rapidly. But the reason I say that is, Look at a couple of great examples of even if you can find what we all seem to think are the right people like Larry Culp over at GE and uh, uh, Charlie Scharf over at uh, Wells Fargo. Great examples of they've been there now for a couple of years in one case and in a year and a half on the other. The stocks have gone nowhere. And why have they gone nowhere? Because it takes a long time to turn these big battleships around. And the biggest problem for Intel was it was the missteps. And it was one misstep after another. And I think that was the big problem because you start losing that market share to AMD and to NVIDIA and uh, any of the other competitors. And that's a major problem. And it takes a while to get that back. And I think they've got their work cut out for them. So I see this as a great opportunity. I mean, not too long ago, Mel, this is a $45 stock that suddenly traded 60 today and it's still in the upper 50s gives you an opportunity i think to say you know what thanks a lot i'll see you in a year or two when we start to see some some real moves Mm -hmm. but i think until then there are better better names out there micron marvell i mean those are still inexpensive guy to your point about some of those that fundamentally are a little bit stretched i think those are names that i think still have plenty of room to the upside and they traded a very pleasant valuation versus what you're seeing in some of the others Pleasant evaluation. That's the first I've heard from Pete. Um, in terms of the damage at Intel, is it comparable to, to the damage that was uh, had at General Electric over the course of decades when it comes to culture and accounting and, and bad acquisitions at bad times? Um, Bob Swan was in, in the CEO role for two and a half years, Guy. So do you think the turnaround is as difficult no, I think Pete makes great points. I'm, I'm glad he mentioned GE. I think, it's, I think Pete would agree with this as well. It, completely different. A lot of the stuff that GE was over decades, uh, and they took numerous missteps. I think Intel's biggest misstep, in my opinion, is the fact that they, weren't, they didn't keep up with the times. The world passed them by extraordinarily quickly. We were having a much different conversation three or four years ago than we're having right now. We used to have a conversation that the only reason AMD exists is so that Intel Hmm. won't be a monopoly. I know we had that conversation on this show years ago, so it's fascinating how quickly things have turned around. So I think it's a good comparison. The GE stuff, to me, was over decades. The Intel stuff was probably over the last four or five years. Yeah, Tim, since you're in GE, what do you think of that comparison? And I'm in, I'm in Intel. I'm not in Wells Fargo. Um, oh, gee, yeah. look, I, I think Pete's talking about turnaround stories and, and, and the time it takes. I don't think he's comparing the companies. Um, but so uh, I'll just say this, too, though. In terms of turning around, some of the issues at GE and some of the issues at Wells Fargo were related to balance sheet and corporate governance and, and, and really systemic failure and a lack of trust. I, I'm not sure that's what we have going on here at Intel. I mean, look, Intel, it's a technology company. It hasn't been at the leading edge of technology. Um, and, and I think it, it basically fell behind uh, its peers even in, in more of the, the commoditized parts of the technology space. So that's what we need to see. They brought in a CTO. They brought in an original member of the team. They brought in someone that really understands uh, the technology that's needed in processing and where this company may choose to strategically be out a few years, but I think can shore up problems um, quicker than people think in the core businesses that aren't going to change. All right. Let's turn now to the historic vote in the House to impeach President Trump for a second time. Let's get to Elon Moy in Washington with the very latest. Elon. 
Melissa, the House has now voted to impeach President Trump once again, this time for incitement of insurrection. The final count was 232 in favor, 197 against, and 10 Republicans, a record number, crossed the aisle to vote with Democrats. My vote to impeach our sitting president is not a fear-based decision. I am not choosing a side. I'm choosing truth. It's the only way to defeat fear. Now, the Senate will not reconvene until January 19th, and that means that the trial would not start until President Trump is already out of office. A two-thirds supermajority in the Senate chamber would be required to convict President Trump. And today, GOP Senator Lindsey Graham, a top Trump ally, came out against this process, saying the trial would only divide the country further and possibly even incite more violence. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has been more circumspect. In a note to his colleagues, he said only, I have not made a final decision decision on how I will vote, and I intend to listen to the legal arguments when they are presented to the Senate. However, he also said that a fair and serious trial could not be completed before Biden is sworn in next week, and Melissa, that his focus right now is on a safe inauguration and an orderly transition of power. Back to you. All right, Elon, thank you. Elon Moy. Well, the fallout from last week's riots on Capitol Hill has been far-reaching. Disney, Best Buy, Lyft, joining a growing group of companies that have stopped political donations to those specifically who have disputed the election results. This is uh, an area, it seems like there's been a slow creep of corporate America into the political fray. And here we are. And for some of them, I imagine they were, they were asked by their employees, asked by their constituents to make such moves. Steve Grasso, is this wise? No, I, I never think it's wise for a corporation to play politics because, you know, this is, this is something where I think Michael Jordan said it best. He said, Republicans buy sneakers, too. So you never want to offend anyone on the other side. You did have 73, 74 million people in this country vote for President Trump. So you're alienating almost half the country immediately. So does everyone care about it? No. But I think that playing politics in corporate America is a very dicey game. And it's very, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a tepid game at, at, at most points because everything is running extremely hot right now. But I think the further away we get, President Trump's going to be out of office in a handful of days. He's basically out of office now. I think that the further away we get from this, we want to have cooler heads prevail. I don't think the Senate gets to that two-thirds majority. So let's leave it in the rearview mirror and let's leave corporate America out of it. That's my opinion. Focus on the priorities like stimulus. Um, at the same time, it's interesting that there there is a distinction between companies who specifically say they're suspending donations to those who uh, refuse to recognize the election results. And then there are those who say that they are suspending all political donations. And you have to wonder, Tim, if if maybe this is going to be the new trend in corporate America where they stay out of politics altogether. What what is the end game for them? We're donating the minimum contribution to a various number of, of senators and congresspeople on both sides of the aisle. I, I think the end game is, is that they're not going to get as far away from politics as they seem like they're going to today. Mm. And, and I think you have a case where uh, if you think about Facebook and you think about the advertisers that, that really went out of their way to say we're pulling money and got out there and out front and in some sense we're making a political statement by making a political statement. And, uh, you know, I, 
I, I just think that there there are times that and there we know the corporations that have chosen to be more political than others over the years, or at least the the the, the CEOs or the heads of those corporations. And, you know, I think of Starbucks um, as a company that at times has chosen to be political, um, but they've done it for more, I think, you know, broader social acceptance. And, and, and to that extent, I think sometimes it's actually worked for 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 Starbucks. Nike, we, we know, has been in, in the middle of, of politics um, ultimately, I think it's going to be impossible to get corporations and separate them from politics because that's the nature of, of, uh, of commerce. But I think today and now, uh, these announcements don't surprise me. I don't think they're forever. All right. Coming up, don't, can't, don't get caught off guard. One top technician lays out the three most surprising charts in the entire market, what they are and how you can trade around them. And later, Shake Shack surges. The details on what sent that stock sizzling higher today and how to trade it. Much more Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert in the NBA, and it could be our trade of the day. Brian Sullivan joins us on the Fast Line with that. Brian. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, big fan of the show. First time, long time here, guys. Um, <laughs> The CNBC can confirm that the Houston Rockets have initiated and completed a monster trade more complicated than a Mike Coe four-way barbell straddle on options action. So Harden, James Harden is going to the Brooklyn Nets. It is a four-team transaction. Obviously, Harden is the key focal point of all this. He has been unhappy in Houston, made some comments they weren't good enough to compete for a championship, so he is out. He is headed to Brooklyn to be reunited with KD and Kyrie Irving. Uh, in exchange, Houston is getting a lot of players and a lot of picks. They get three first-round picks, 2022, 2024, 26, some pick swaps as well. They get a pick from Cleveland, too. But the headline here, so the Pacers are involved, and they get Victor Oladipo from the Pacers, two-time All-Star with an expiring contract. So James Harden out of Houston. Houston set to launch on uh, potentially a big multi-year rebuilding process as well. A lot of picks, a lot of swaps. Harden is out, Oladipo and some other guys. I feel like Guy Adami calling into WFAN. <laughs> Brian, thanks. <laughs> Brian Sullivan with the, with the latest uh, hot trade in the NBA. Brian mentioned multi-team. It involves the Rockets, the Pacers, the Cavaliers, as well as the Nets. You guys know I have no idea what was just said by Brian. He's a great guy, great reporter. I have no, So I, I will toss it up. Jump ball, I want to say. <laughs> uh, Guy Dami, why don't you take it? Nice job. Uh, Melissa, yes. how many basketballs do they play with at one time in an NBA game? Is this like a trick question? <laughs> one. No, so it's not a trick question. One. I mean, I'm just, uh, I mean one. I've seen That's basketball exactly right. before. Go ahead. And now, the, and now the Nets, basically in their nine fans, have three of the most um, – ball-centric <laughs> players in the league. I'm fascinated to see how this works out. If I could short net wins right now, I'd absolutely do it. Just my opinion. Right. Well, we have got a lot more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Markets off to a strong start for the new year. But there are a couple surprises that could be lurking in the shadows. We go off the charts to find out how you should get ready for them. Plus, we're watching a couple new members of the all-time high club. The stocks hitting records today and where they're going from here. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Think you've seen all the surprises this market has to offer? Think again. Our next guest is laying out three market hotspots that could catch investors off guard. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verone of Strategus. Chris, what are you watching? Hi, Melissa. How are you? I think uh, investors better get ready for a couple surprises this year. Uh, I want to start with bond yields. And listen, we've all seen bond yields go up over the last number of weeks. We've pushed through 1%, an important technical breakout. Frankly, it's pretty easy to make a case that they want to go to 135 or 140. But in I've never seen bond yields obey what the consensus actually wants. And I think when you look at, at some of these charts here, um, resistance uh, at 140. But look at the distribution that we've brought along uh, on the second chart, a distribution of where the sell side believes 10-year yields will end the year. Only four of 58 analysts out there believe 10-year yields will exceed 150. So what's the surprise here? I think you can get a two-handle on 10-year yields at some point this year. The street is not ready for it. Second surprise, Let's talk about the dollar. And I think this goes hand in hand with the yield call. If you're going to get bond yields meaningfully higher, that creates an attraction for capital flows into the U.S. Everyone is a dollar bear. And I think we need to be very, very mindful of how lopsided sentiment has gotten on one side. Our dollar survey shows one of the highest levels of bearishness since 2014. We have seen these coincide with dollar rallies in the past. I don't think it would be a shock over the next number of months to see DXY bounce, perhaps back to that 93 or 94 zone. That would be a pain trade for a lot of people in this market. And it brings us to what I think is the third surprise, energy, more than just a trade. Every time people talk about this sector, even the bulls, it's described as only a trade. We think it's more than a trade. We think adorable period of improvement is underway in this sector. You have 80% of the energy sector in an uptrend. That's one of the best readings we've seen in years that tends to precede future gains, future leadership. I think that's starting to build here. And what I would really emphasize within the sector is owning the average stock. There are three names in the sector that comprise 50% of the weight. That's too concentrated for us. Go down, the scap, go down the cap scale, own the average energy name. That's where we think leadership is found. So rates, dollar, energy, three surprises for 21. All right, Chris, thank you. Chris Verone, got you. a lot to talk about regarding these surprises. Pete, which surprise do you think has the highest likelihood of happening? I'm going to go with energy, Mel. And as a matter of fact, my exposure to energy is very, very high right now. And a lot of these beta type names, those next level down names. So for instance, I own Exxon the stock, I own Chevron in stock, but in terms of calls, Marathon Petroleum, Marathon Oil, uh, Occidental, those kind of names where I think you're getting a lot of beta. So in other words, you're getting a lot of bang for your buck. I, I don't think it's over. I still think there's more upside. And we've watched the price of crude go from 38 to 53, 54 mm -hmm. in a hurry. And I don't know that I see any signs of stopping there. So I think that, that Chris is right. And I think energy still has a lot more room to run. Grasso, same question to you. Uh, so I'm going to go with the 10-year because the, the basis of me moving from growth to value has been rates increasing. The 10-year on a percentage basis is up 126% from its August low. So I like, I, I like his dollar call. I like the energy call. I think energy is going to have a problem with ESG. 
That's, that's a main problem. That's a main headwind. But yesterday, Tudor, Pick, Tudor Pickering was out bullish on a handful of Nat Gas names. Uh, SWN, RRC, uh, they were out on three other, uh, three other names. They're coming from such a low base, Melissa, that they can double, triple, and quadruple and still be just out of single digits, a lot of these names. So I think energy can run a bit, can surprise a lot of people, but I think the 10-year is going to run a lot further than people think. Just quickly on the dollar, we've talked many times about how consensus is that the dollar weakens, and there's a constellation of trades that have been built around this thesis of continued dollar weakening. If Chris's surprise comes true, Tim, which trade is most vulnerable? Uh, well, first of all, one of the trades he just mentioned, I, like if the dollar rallies a lot, energy's uh, I think going to be under pressure. And, and if the dollar rallies a lot, I think actually yields are going down. But that, uh, I think Chris does a great job and all the stuff he talks about. Uh, but of the other trades, obviously, resources and reflation trades in a higher dollar and especially emerging markets. If the dollar goes to 95. I'm very bullish EM. I know Mike Coe's on the show later mm-hmm. uh, to talk about that trade. Um, I think that trade would suffer a bit. But again, a move to 94 um, is is. Uh, you know, a bit of a bounce, but I think that's more than a bounce. I think a move to 91.92 just sets you up for this trade to go weaker. I, I think the trend in the dollar remains weaker. I know it's crowded, um, but I-, I-, I think there's a reason for that. All right, coming up, we just talked about EM. Emerging markets have been on a tear since the March lows, but we spotted one trade that suggests the rally is running out of steam. We'll tell you what it is. But first, Pete is winding up for a fast pitch. He says this stock will give investors sweet dreams. He's taking the mound with Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money Markets on the rebound today. But our own Pete Nigerian says there is one under-the-radar winner that investors may be sleeping on. He's stepping up to the plate with his very own fast pitch. Pete, take it away. All right, I'm going to start with Sleep Number. Now, this is a name that not very many people know. It's been around for a really long time. They had a name change. But Shelly Eibach has done an absolutely magnificent job, Mel, directing this company for a number of years. She joined the company in 2007. And then by 2012, she became the CEO of the company. She has been navigating this stock higher and higher and higher through a lot of different methods. But some of, the, of which were some of the investments that she's made, the marketing that she's done, uh, and, and some of the partnerships that she's made as well, along with being with Mayo, the Mayo Clinic, the NFL. So I think that that standpoint of, of the business itself, I think she has just done a magnificent job. On the second side of things, I always like to look at the fundamentals. When I see free cash flows like I see in this company, company, they got $200 million out of $2 billion market cap. So that's 10%. That's pretty impressive. Uh, When you look at the gross margins, you're looking at margins that are plus 60%. That's really impressive. So I I like the fundamental side of the story as well. And then when I look at growth and I see that the revenue growth is about 12%, the earnings growth is about 13%, and they've bought back 50%, 50%, just about 50% of their outstanding shares. I think they're doing everything right. The stock looks like a rocket ship. It has been, but I think it's going a lot higher still, Mel. And I think some of the folks out in the street, Piper Sandler, for instance, just yesterday was talking about how they think some of the growth is still going and getting a lot growthier as we get into 2021. All right, let's open the floor to questions. Uh, Guy, I believe you have a question for Pete. Huge fan of his work, as he knows. My, my, my one question would be, just play devil's advocate, valuation. I, I mean, I understand the growth. I understand the cash flow. Are you comfortable with the valuation, given this ridiculous run the stock has had over the last six months? 
Yeah, and the, you know, that's a great question, uh, Guy. And when you look at uh, what, what's really been going on there underneath, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a very valid question to ask. But I think the reality is the growth that they are seeing from Piper Sandler, and I happen to agree, and we've seen what they've been able to put up in previous quarters. But going forward, I think this is a company that's going to be earning well over $5 a share. If that's the case, I think it's going to be a lot cheaper than it probably appears right now. Steve Grassley, got a question? Yeah, Pete. So when you look at this, as Guy alluded to, this stock has had a, a monstrous run. But I hear you on the buybacks that, th- that they've had. Does the, uh, does the idea of it flirting with the RSI relative strength index of 70, which means overbought, does that scare you for a little bit of pullback? Mm-hmm. A little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I, all you got to do is look at this chart. And I think all of that scares you. But I think the reality is this is a stock that I think goes higher, especially as other analysts out in the field start to see what they're doing and what their growth looks like for next year or this year. All right. No more question. It is time to vote. Are you buying Pete's pitch on sleep number? Tim Seymour, what do you say? Yeah, I, I don't like the move in the stock, and I don't like the valuation, but I like the segment, and I like Pete sleeping <laughs> here uh, on, on this bed. And I do think that this is a story that continues to move higher because this is a trend and this is a space that I think, uh, again, fits into a lot of these at-home trades. Tim is like the Van Gogh of Fast Money. Um, Guy Dami, what do you say? <laughs> I might not be Van Gogh, but I can. Can you read that, please? My smart board, please, My Melissa. My sleep number is 118. 118, yes. 118 is a very lucky number, as some of you in the audience might know. And that's where I think the stock is going. If Pete's power pitching this thing, it's for a reason. I'm with Pedro. Can, is 118 a real number on a sleep number mattress? I think that's too high. Yeah, um, no idea. Steve Grasso. <laughs> so I'm going to buy Pete's pitch here. And, and this worked for me. When price targets are magnets in stocks. And, pr- and the price target usually attracts the stock. I bought Chewy at 68. It's trading, uh, it traded to 114 today. I bought it because somebody threw out Jeffries, I believe, a $100 price target. I think this gets to 108, that price target. And then to Guy's point, I think it surpasses that. And I think we could see a $118, $120 number. All right. The traders have voted. It is now your turn to vote. Are you buying Pete's fast pitch on sleep number? Head to our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money to cast your vote. We've got the results later on in the show. Up next, we're tackling three big movers in today's session. We'll break down the trades on Target, Shake Shack and GameStop when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for our Trader Triple Play. Three big moves in today's session. Let's kick things off with Shake Shack, the fast food stock, jumping more than 7% today. That's more follow-through to some strong preliminary sales numbers for the quarter that released yesterday at a conference. Uh, Guy Dami, I know you worked there for a brief amount of time doing I don't know what. Um, But do you like the stock here? (laughs) First of all, I mean, the, the indignation, it's, I mean, I worked there. I did a, a great job for them. They asked me to stay on, but I said, you know, I'm true to fast money. So that was my <laughs> foray into Shake Shack. But ever since then, we have been steadfast in our belief. What I'll tell you is the move has been great. It's a little extended now. It's right back up to those September 2019 highs. You made that today on pretty big volume. I'm inclined to take profits, but, you know, I don't think it's going to trade significantly or so, then you buy it again. 
Uh, they highlighted their Shack Track initiatives at this conference yesterday, where they will add drive-throughs and walk-up windows in the urban areas, which comprise about 60 percent of sales, um, the, the urban areas, that is. Uh, Sigrasa, do you like this? Do you go elsewhere in fast food? Um, so I was in Sh- uh, Shake Shack. I made about uh, 25 percent off the trade. Now I look silly because it's traded higher. This one has an enhanced digital platform, which that was what attracted me originally to Domino's Pizza. I think that there's a lot that's already factored into this stock and the recovery route with this stock. It has outperformed McDonald's um, by, a, by a large distance since September. I think we're running out a, l- a little bit of juice, but I did sell it already myself. I clipped a profit and I, I, and I gave up some of this upside. So maybe you get a little more left, but I think you're running really low mm. on, uh, on any more momentum. All right, let's get the target here. Hitting the bullseye, trading at all-time highs before it pulled back, finishing the day lower by a percent. The company reporting strong holiday sales numbers. The big box retailer saw e-commerce sales more than double in November as well as December. I mean, these numbers were just staggering. Total same-day same services were up 193%. 95% of, of the sales were fulfilled by stores. Um, so, Pete, you've, uh, you've fast-pitched this before. Yeah, I love this name. And as a matter of fact, you know, you can't say enough about what the CEO, Brian Cornell, has done at Target to improve this company. It was a $26 billion market cap when he took over, Mel, and now it's about a $100 billion market cap. So it, that says a lot about what they've been able to do in a short period of time. And these numbers are extraordinary. You just mentioned a couple of them. How about drive up up a a 500 percent? I mean, these numbers are numbers that we just can't even hardly comprehend. But I think the reality is the the, the other side of it is as people get more comfortable, you were talking about going into the future with vaccines and so forth. As people get more comfortable and get more in stores and they're doing more shopping, not just for essentials, that's where the margins are and that's where the real money is for Target. So I don't think this run is over yet. And I think this is a name that can continue to the upside. We always ask about what happens on the other side when things go back to normal. Well, some analysts say that that drive-up number that Pete cited, that indicates that the gains that Target is making during the pandemic, they are going to stick. So, Tim Seymour, would you stick with Target? I like what you did there. I, I think that the, the concept around e-commerce <laughs> is enough to keep the multiple higher than it has been historically. So it should be trading at a better multiple. And, and I think the trends we see in e-commerce, and it's the same thing that we're doing with Walmart on some level. So um, I, I, look, I think they have pulled forward some business, but we've got another round of stimulus checks on the horizon. And, and I think their, their second quarter is going to look pretty strong as well uh, by the time that filters through. So I wouldn't get too far away from this one. I don't think you have to chase today's move, uh, but this has been a stock that every time it's moved higher, it's been worth buying on weakness. All right, let's round things out with GameStop surging higher today, up more than 57%, hitting its highest level since 2016. While the move appears to be a result of a short squeeze, the video game space has been a hot one amid the work-from-home boom. So now is now the time for investors uh, to jump in. We should note, too, that there is a board shakeup. An activist investor who, who sent a letter in in November got a seat on the board, uh, got two of his former colleagues on the board. By the way, that, that activist is the founder of Chewy, so another successful uh, e-commerce uh, play. And, and he's advocating for fewer stores, fewer bricks and mortar, and more of a digital business. Um, Tim, you are the gamer. Uh, of the group. Yeah. I, I use and, that term light, and, and I mean, loosely, very loosely, but. 
Well, hold on, a, hold on a second. You have no idea how I move around the, I'll leave it alone. All right, so, so if you think about this story and you think about the, the structural issues that GameStop has had, um, good for them. This is requiring a, a move to subscription services and some, some digital and some loyalty that I think is, is part of this re-rating. But, uh, you know, this, this is short covering at its finest and at its most painful. Um, you know, who needs Bitcoin when this thing can, you know, move over the last uh, you know, three or four months, over 800 percent. I'm not chasing this move. Uh, and, and I still think that there are structural issues for this company in a world where uh, hardware is not really the story. Um, and the the changes that they're making, I think, are ones that uh, put them in the game, but put them behind in the game. A little more than a week ago, the short interest in this stock exceeded the number of shares outstanding guy. I, I didn't even know that was possible until I read that about GameStop today. I mean, that's how squeezy the squeeze was <laughs> yeah amazing I, I didn't know that was possible actually camp out outside the gamestop uh brick and mortar stores to purchase you know whatever playstation or things that i'm oh there million shares today it typically trades 10 million shares i think all right, we are having problems with Guy's mic, so we're just going to leave you hanging. <laughs> no idea what he's going to say <laughs> for another show. All right, coming up, is there danger emerging in the EM trade options? Markets are betting on just that. We'll dive into the pits for a look. And, hey, don't sleep in our Twitter poll. Are you buying Pete's fast pitch on sleep number? Head uh, to CNBC Fast Money to vote. Those results when we come right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. The EEM Emerging Markets ETF ticking higher today. It's now up nearly 6% since the start of 2021. But Mike co spotted some unusual activity in the options market that could signal a rocky road ahead. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, so what I was taking a look at was the largest single listed options trade today. EEM traded more than seven times the average daily put volume. And all of that was related to a very large block of puts that traded, specifically the December 49 strike, 40 strike, and 25 strike puts each traded just under 250,000 contracts each. The buyer was buying the 49 strike puts and then selling the 40 strike puts and buying the 25 strike puts. The long and short of this is that somebody was basically either shorting or putting a hedge on approximately $1.25 billion notionally of emerging markets exposure. Maybe that's not surprising, given that EEM has rallied nearly 80% since the March 23rd low and is up about 20% year over year right now. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time coming up. Don't count sheep just yet because we are still counting votes. Head to our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money to vote for Pete's pitch on sleep number. We'll reveal the results right after this quick break. Welcome back to Fast. Time to find out if the Twitterverse is buying Pete's Fast Pitch on sleep number. It looks like it's a sleepless night for the Fast Pitch. <laughs> Nearly 60 percent of voters were not buying it, Pete. Too bad. But you got 40 percent. Yeah, it's understandable. All right. <laughs> yeah. The chart, I think, scares people off sometimes. No. Yep. All right. Time for the final trade. Let us go around the horn. Pete. I got to go with sleep number. I think I believe in it, and I think it's going higher. <laughs> Tim Seymour. Don't sleep on emerging markets. We're finally breaking out after a 13-year uh, part between new highs and a breakout against the S&P on the EMDM ratio. EM. 
Steve Grasso. Virgin Galactic, it had a poor uh, test flight on December 12th. The stock sold off aggressively. The window opened for a test flight this weekend. I expect the stock to be about 40% higher when that test flight goes okay from there. SPCE, bye. By the way, ARK is launching a space exploration ETF, so that should be interesting. Guy Dami. Yeah, Mel, do you have quick thoughts on that Harden trade? I know you've been watching it over the last uh, couple of hours. unbelievable. Unbelievable. I think that sort of that really captures it, that one word. I agree with that. And James, welcome to Brooklyn. I know you're a Fast Money fan. Lim Research. Uh, I think it goes higher from here. Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.